Amen. Lord, that's our heart, that you would have your way with every aspect of our lives. Father, that we would surrender completely unto you. Lord, that you would fan the flame, that flame of your Holy Spirit within us, Lord. Father, fill us afresh, fill us to overflowing. Lord, may we pour out on the world around us that is so dry and so desperate for the truth. Lord, may we not hide it, may we not hold it, Father. Lord, we pray as we go to your word that you would be our teacher. Minister to our hearts, Lord. We thank you and praise you that you've given us your word, that you've written it down for us, Lord, that we can read and understand and hear your heart. So, Lord, may we be attentive. May we be ready to receive from you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. Great to have you guys here. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 24. Continue our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. As you guys know, I'm a pretty transparent guy, so I don't think there's anything different than being more transparent with you. I want you to be praying. Uh, We thought we might be here tonight to announce to you that we were moving into a new building. We were all set. It looked great. It was a God thing, we thought. And then we found out the last minute that zoning laws have changed and we can't go there. But that just means God's in control and He knows what He's doing. Amen? Now, with that being said, I will say this, that it's amazing. All these buildings we're looking at, we're finding out almost all of them are not zoned for churches. There's a new zoning law, and we know that there's an enemy that doesn't want churches in Santa Cruz. Amen? But you know what? Praise God that our God is greater. And so be, just be praying. You know, and again, it's not a building that saves people, but we want to be faithful to have the facilities necessary to reach this county for the kingdom of God. He can do it right where we are. We can stay right here if that's what the Lord wants for us, and we're certainly open to that. But we need to be diligent and faithful just to seek the Lord's face and to hear His heart. So just be praying with us about that, okay? That was weak. I hope you pray better than you respond, okay? Amen? All right. 1 Samuel 24. All right, tonight we're going to continue to look at the preparation of the young man who would be king. You know, still in the beginning of his his 10 years that he's going to be on the run from King Saul. And we saw in last week's text, one of the things I loved about David, one of the many things I love about David, is though even though he was running for his life, even though he was in the greatest time of trial and difficulty in his life, he did not check out. He didn't stop being used by God. And there's a temptation by us in the midst of trials to pull back and wait till the trial goes by. And there's nothing the enemy wants more than for you to check out, for you to stop being used. If he can't keep you from heaven, he wants to keep you from being effective for the kingdom here on earth. And so the Lord's heart and desires that we would, in the midst of our trials, continue to be faithful. And as we saw in the life of David, we know that, you know, he was anointed king and we know all the great attributes about him, fighting lions and bears and, you know, killing the giant and all the things we've seen. But at the same time, In the midst of all that, God had greater things He wanted to do with David in preparation to be the king. You would think it was all enough. You've killed the giant when nobody else would fight. You know, you're a a man of worship who when you worship, the distressing spirit of King Saul flees. I mean, you're known for worship. You're known for being filled with the Holy Spirit. You're known for being a mighty warrior. You're known for being a man who would step up when nobody else would. Boy, you must be ready. But God had more He wanted to do in this young man's heart. And sometimes we can get frustrated because we think we're ready and God wants to do more in our hearts. Amen? So we need to be patient and wait upon the Lord and learn from David's example. And so what we've seen in the last few chapters is that David was on the run. He's having spears thrown at him. 
He's been removed from his family, his friends. He can't go back to the pal, you know, to the to the palace. He can't go back to the tabernacle. He cannot worship. We know that David did have a momentary time of of really blowing it, and it was a great consequence. If you'll remember, he went to the priest at Nob, and when he got there, he lied. And in lying to them, it ended up that Saul heard that the priest had helped him, and he came in and he wiped out all the priests, killed them all and their families. So David's lie resulted in the death of many godly people. And when we sin, our sin not only impacts our walk, but impacts others. And so then we saw that God used that, though, in a sense, to grab David's heart, and David began again to be faithful. But he escaped to the cave of Adullam, and there God brought to him a ragtag group of misfits. 400 people who were discontented and indebted and, you know, their lives were a disaster, but they came to David because they knew he was a man who could relate to them. And, you know, that's such a picture of every one of us indebted to our sin, lost in desperate need of a Savior, and we come to our Savior because He can relate to us. And that He came to earth, He took on human skin, He was an always tempted as we are yet without sin, and we come to the Son of David just as they came to David. Now... Last week, in chapter 23, we saw a godly response in the, in the, to the trials of life. And we saw how, in the midst of the trial, David still looked for opportunities to minister to others. He still sought the Lord for direction. He obeyed the voice of God rather than the voice of man. He wasn't surprised when people turned on him. He knew that the enemy never rested. We're going to see those same themes continue on as we look at the text this evening. And I titled the message, if you're a note taker, and we're going to learn a great deal from the example of David yet again as he continues to be in exile, as he continues to run from the king, that God is doing a work in him, and as God does a work in him, it's an example of the work he wants to do in us. So if you're a note taker, attributes of a spirit-filled man. These things are seen most clearly in times of trials and difficulty and persecution. It's been said that, you know, when you put someone in the fire you find out what they're really made of. When you squeeze a lemon, you get lemon juice. When you squeeze a Christian, you ought to get Christ-likeness. Amen? That's when it flows out of us what's really in us. So the attributes of a spirit-filled man, seen most clearly in times of trials and difficulty and persecution, number one, he isn't overwhelmed by the zoning commission of Santa Cruz. No, uh, by the size of his opposition. He isn't overwhelmed by the size of his opposition. He doesn't respond the way that the world does. A man of God, even in the midst of a trial, spirit-filled man, doesn't respond the way that the world does. Number three, he's convicted when he acts contrary to God's will. Guys, here's the truth. If you didn't know this already, you need to hear it. You're going to blow it this week. Is that true or not? You're going to sin. The difference between the believer and the unbeliever is how you respond when you sin. And I'm not saying sin's okay. We should be grieved by it. Be holy for I am holy. But at the same time, when we sin, how we respond is a reflection of where our heart is. And so a spirit-filled man is convicted, a man or woman is convicted when they act contrary to the will of God. Number four, a spirit-filled man or woman sees submission to authority as submission to God. Something we all struggle with. We'll look at that when we get there. Number five, has a clear conscience before God not because of his good works, but because who we are in Christ. And then lastly, his godly actions bring, brings conviction to others. Let's begin in 1 Samuel 24, looking at the attributes of a spirit-filled man, seen most clearly in times of trials and difficulty and persecution. First of all, 
a spirit-filled man is not overwhelmed by the size of the opposition. Verse 1. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines. If you were here last week, the way the chapter ended, as you will recall, David was backed up. He was, Saul had come to attack him. David was on one side of a, a mount, which was probably a small hill, not a huge mountain. The mount was being surrounded. They were coming around on both sides. He had nowhere to go. He was completely trapped. It looked like there was no escape. Now, I believe Saul did not know that David was just around the corner, but they were getting close, close to discovering that David was there. And David, it seemed like, was completely trapped. And in the midst of that, what happened? Word came to Saul that the Philistines were attacking and they withdrew and ran back to enter into the battle against the Philistines and David and his men were spared. Again, we're indestructible until God is through with us. And I do believe that if Saul had known he was there, not even the Philistines would have stopped him. I think he would have let the Philistines run over his people to get to David because he's obsessed with him. But in the midst of it all, God will use even the enemy to get his will done. God is in control of everything. He is a faithful God. So God can turn the minds of the Santa Cruz County Zoning Commission. God can turn the minds of your boss. God can turn the minds of anyone to do His perfect will and His perfect timing. And so we need to trust that. Amen? And we need to know that God is faithful even when our circumstances seemed, seem overwhelming. You know, David had been anointed by God through the prophet Samuel as the next king, king of Israel. So God's hand was upon this young man. And he was with him when he had, you know, slayed the giant and killed the bear. And as he protected him from Saul's spears, you know, God was not going to allow anything to happen to David that was contrary to his perfect will. The same is true for you and I. Well, Pastor Dave, I've been diagnosed with cancer. You know what? God knew it was coming he allowed it for a reason. He will be glorified through it if you will let him. Now, we might say, well, that's a hard word to hear, ma'am. You, you've, you've never, you're right. I've never had cancer. And you know, that would be difficult. But let me say this. If we have an eternal perspective, the worst thing the world can do to us is the best thing that can happen to us. Amen? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And holding on to this life as tightly as we do sometimes is really, it's sinful. That we hold on to the very thing. You know what? We need to be busy about God's work while we're here, but we should not be so overwrought by the fact that this life, we are getting older. And you know what? This temp tent is temporary. But praise God that it is. Amen? I don't want to live in this thing forever. I don't know about you. When I get to heaven, I'm going to have hair. It's going to be good. You know, God's got something so much better for us. And you know what? David was anointed by God and God had his hand on David. And even when the enemy was surrounding him, if the enemy had gotten to him, it would have been God's will. But we know that God had greater things in store for David. And God has greater things in store for you. And we need to know that God is faithful and he's in control and we can trust him. David is learning to trust God every time one of these circumstances takes place. Every time he's on the edge of being wiped out and it doesn't happen, he learns to trust God more. Every time you're on a, in a place where you, it seems like there's no way out and God comes through one more time, your faith grows. Amen? You learn to trust Him even more. You can say by experience, I know that God comes through because He always has for me. Amen? And so that's what David is learning. And it's a lesson that he would have seemed to have learned already, but God was not done preparing this man 
who would be king. With a high calling comes a great amount of responsibility and most often a great amount of preparation. So it says, it happened when Saul returned from following the Philistines. So he goes and he attacks the Philistines. But as soon as he gets done with them, what does he do? He goes right back after David. Look what it says. It says, it was told him saying, take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. So no sooner was he done with the Philistines, he goes back to pursue David. Now, we often wish that our next victory or our present victory would be a permanent victory. All right, I won. That's it. Okay, it's over. No more. I don't have to deal with that ever again. Uh, Guess what? You know, we may desire that our spiritual enemies would leave us alone. They will not leave us alone until we get to heaven. Amen? So it's a spiritual battle. We battle every single day. You know, the Apostle Paul, one of the most godly men who ever lived, Talk about the fact, you know, the things I desire to do, I don't do. And that which I desire not to do, I do. What is it? It's a spiritual battle that happens every single day. And so Saul leaves and there's a momentary time of, of, you know, relief from the attack of the enemy. But no sooner does he wipe out the Philistines and he's coming right back for David. Seemingly no relief. But you know what? God is continuing to prepare him to be the king He's called him to be. Again, every single time we go through a difficulty, remember that God is preparing us. The refiner's fire is not a place of punishment, but a place of preparation. Amen? When you're going through it, now, let me make something very clear. You go out and commit a crime, and you're in jail because of it, and there are heavy-duty consequences. That is not the refiner's fire. That is the sin consequences of sin. Amen? But when we're walking with God and we're obeying Him and consequences come, that's the refi- Now, we can still learn a great deal from the trials of life and, uh, and the consequences of sin. We can learn from that. But understand, God didn't put us in jail. We put ourselves there. Now, if you end up in jail because you're preaching the gospel and you're being bold for your faith, that's a totally different issue. But in either case, we need to understand that God is faithful, that He's in control, that He loves you. So Saul has a one-track mind. Where's David? You heard about David. Where is he? He's in Engedi. Let me go get him. Now, why does he hate David so much? Just a refresher. Let me tell you why he hates him. David's a godly man. David's a man being used mildly by God. David is obviously the man who's going to take his place. Saul knows it. Jonathan knows it. The people know it. They're singing songs about David. And you know what? A man who's prideful and filled with his flesh doesn't like it when the light shines on anybody but himself. David's only desire was that God would be glorified. Saul's only desire was that he himself would be glorified. And so he doesn't like David because David is a man who's being used by God. This man, Saul, once filled with the Holy Spirit, is now filled with the flesh. And he is so enthralled by his you know, attraction and desire for power, he wants to wipe out anybody that gets in his way. Today, the same thing happens. Saul is leaving behind his job and is calling his king to go after David because that's all he's thinking about right now. And the same thing can happen to a man who gets so enthralled with an affection for or an attraction to his secretary that he walks away from his marriage, covenant, his, his children, his testimony, all in pursuit of fulfilling his fleshly desire. King Saul is abandoning everything to pursue one thing that is contrary to the will of God. And it doesn't have to be, it can be a relationship that's outside of God's will. It can be drugs, it can be alcohol, it can be the pursuit of money, it can be a career. It can be anything that we pursue more than we pursue God. Are you telling me we're supposed to pursue God above everything? That's exactly what I'm telling you. 
More than anything else, above anything else, he's to be, you know, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain is my life's verse, Philippians 1.21. And that doesn't mean Christ is first in my life. It means he's first, he's 10th, he's 50th, he's 100th, he's 1,000th, he's 1 millionth, and he's every number in between, he is my life. And that's exactly the heart that we should have for the Lord. And if that's the heart we have for the Lord, our life belongs to the Lord, and if the trials come to make us closer to the Lord, then bring it on, because that's good. Amen? Amen. And this is where David is in preparation. He's in the refiner's fire. Stuff's coming after him. He thinks he's got some relief as the enemy goes away, but he's coming right back. And you know what? We too need to be ready because the enemy is coming right back. But praise God, the greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Praise God that he's in control. Saul's obsessed with David because he's a man being used mightily by God. By the way, Satan's resources are limited, so if he's going after you, God must be using you. Amen? So praise God. Then it says, take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Now, those of you who go to Israel with us, En Gedi, beautiful place. I don't know if we had, I thought we had some pictures maybe. But this is a barren, desolate territory surrounding, surrounded by the Dead Sea. And there's a canyon that runs westward from the Dead Sea. And in the middle of it is this place in Gedi. And incredibly, in En Gedi, there's a, and I don't know how well those pictures, now that kind of shows you how dry En Gedi is. But in the middle of that, Amazingly enough, you see how dry and, de- and desolate that is. There's, fa- there's fountains or there's springs and there's waterfalls that come right out. And in the middle of this desert, you see this beautiful, lush, green place that doesn't make any sense that it's there. And you look at it and it is absolutely beautiful. And it's an interesting, the wilderness of En Gedi. Now, En Gedi, what does that mean? It means fountain of the kid or, or spring of wild goats. And what's interesting when... Ever I've been there and taught in that spot, there's always wild goats running around everywhere. And sure enough, there's springs and fountains, there's water flowing all over the place. So it was named in Gedi all these thousands of years ago. And it's just today, very much like it was when David was there. And if you're out in that dry desert, you'd go to where the water was too. Amen? But you know what that shows me? That in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of the trials, there's a place of refreshing. That in the midst of the most difficult place, in the driest place, in the seemingly most barren place, there's a place where the Lord wants to pour out His refreshment upon you. And that's where David is. He's in En Gedi. He's in this place. And it, those pictures don't really do it justice. Now you got to come to Israel with us and, and you'll get to see it, all right? So he, that's where they were in the wilderness. It's called the fountain of the kid. That's what En Gedi means or the, the springs and, of the goats. And that they're, in that very place is where, again, the goats run all over the place. It's incredible. Now it says, Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men. Now, how many men does David have? David has 600. Remember, in the midst of the trial, he started off with 400 guys. In the midst of it, it grew to 600. But what's incredible is that he's got 600 misfits. And as we've seen in the, in the previous weeks, that their counsel's not real good yet. They're going to become David's mighty men, but they're not mighty yet. They're still the misfits, okay? Now, Saul goes and gets the 3,000 best soldiers he's got. So it's five to one. 3,000 best soldiers, you know, trained, you know, armed, ready to go. And David's got 600 misfits who are hiding out in the caves. And you know what? These look like overwhelming odds. But you know what? David's been here before, hasn't he? 
David's been the, the teenage boy fighting 11 foot 750 Goliath. David's been the, the teenage boy fighting a bear and fighting a lion all by himself as he protects the sheep. David's been the one leading the charge out to fight the Philistines. And you know what? David knew that it didn't matter how big the army was that his God is greater. And see, this is the point. This is the lesson that is being learned is all those times that the enemy seems too great for us to overcome. That's exactly where we need to be because that's when we get to see God work. You know, the greater the enemy, the greater our God must be to overcome the enemy. And you know what? Our enemy is only great if our God is small. And our God's not small. Amen? Our God is greater than any foe. And so... Saul mounts up this mass of guys. He's, fl- he's going to Engedi. In Engedi, this dry wilderness area, there are caves and inlets there. It's a very dry place, and that's a good place for them to hide. It's also a good place if someone's coming up on you, you can see them coming because there's kind of one cavern that comes through. You can hear the troops, places to hide, places to defend yourself. And so we have this great enemy, five to one in size, coming after David and his band of misfits. And again, it's 3,000 against 600, but really it's 3,000 against Almighty God and he's greater. So number one, attributes of a spirit-filled man. He isn't overwhelmed by the size of the opposition. It says there, and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. Again, it's interesting. I think we have some pictures from one of the times we were there. I was teaching at this very spot, and, and everybody was looking up behind me, and I could see them doing this the whole time. And I'm like, I turned around, and literally there were 40 wild goats running around. So that place, you know, the Bible rocks because it's always right. Amen? And you know what? Even all these thousands of years later, it's still that very place. Now, attributes of a spirit-filled man. Number two, he doesn't respond the way that the world does. Look what it says in verse 3. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road. This is speaking of Saul, where there was a cave. So a sheepfold just tells us this is a big cave because you could take a whole flock of sheep and put them in there. And as we're about to see, more than likely David, we know David and his men, and probably David and all 600 of his men are hiding in this cave. So that's a big cave. You got 600 guys in there. And so Saul is going along. He's got his 3,000 guys. He's hunting for David. He goes along the sheepfold and he sees this cave. And it says there, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. You know what that means? He went in to go to the bathroom. And now let me say this. Isn't it interesting that God's in control of even that? Because... Is it by doubt that he has to go at the very moment that he's right in front of the cave where David and all his guys are? You know, when you, God's in control everything. Amen? Amen. And so here's, here he goes in and he's, some of your Bibles say to, to cover his feet. They're both euphemisms for going to the bathroom. And it says, and David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Now, understand something. Can you think of a more vulnerable time to be attacked? (laughs) You go into the cave, and by the way, this is the one time Saul would be by himself, right? His bodyguards and everybody else is staying outside of the cave. He goes into the cave, and he's, you know, squatting down and holding his robe up, right? You know, he's literally caught with his pants down, okay? I mean, literally, right? And he's sitting in there. You couldn't be more vulnerable. And they're right behind him with no knowledge of him, of his. There's 600 guys with King David 
soon to be king, not yet king, but David. And David's there, and when he comes in, boy, what an opportunity you might think this is. And so David and his guys are sitting there. What are the chances that Saul comes into the cave we're in? Now, can you imagine they're sitting there and they see this huge silhouette? Remember that Saul was the biggest of all the Israelites. He was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. And the Bible tells us he was the best looking, not man, but person. Good looking guy. So big, good looking Saul comes in and he, you know, he's casting a pretty big shadow and he comes in and they're like, whoa. And then he comes and all of a sudden they, you know, you can just probably hear him whisper, that's Saul. That's King Saul. He's in our cave, right? Now, here's an opportunity to do something. Now, as he's doing this, he is as vulnerable as he will ever be. They're all sitting there. He's, he's in a position where it would be very easy for David or his men to attack. Now, look what happens. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day which the Lord said to you. Behold, I deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as seems good to you. So his men say, Dude, God brought Saul. There he is. Kill him. Dude, David, go get him. Go get him, David. Now, understand, these are his 600 misfits. They're indebted. These guys are in trouble. They, I don't think one of them, of course, has any love for Saul. And now they've seen what Saul's been doing to David during the time they've been following him. And here is a golden opportunity to get even. And not only that, if you kill Saul, David, more than likely, everyone else will just turn and follow you, David, because, you know, you really are the king. You know, we know it. God said it. So why don't we just hasten it and bring it on right now? Just slice them up and then we can go out there and let them know. We can drag him out like you did with Goliath. Let's just drag Saul's head out there too and show him that, hey, you mess with Goliath, you mess with Saul. You don't, you mess with David. You don't want to do that. Everybody just come, you know, we can, and then we can be like your 600 governors. I mean, can't you see that? We can be like your cabinet, right? I mean, we've been walking with you. We've been hiding with you in caves, David. We're your guys. We're with you. Go kill him, right? Now, that's somehow, sometimes how the world will give us advice. They will give us advice to do the very thing that is contrary to the word and the will of God. They also will take the word of God out of context, which I believe they're doing here. Nowhere does the Bible tell David that Saul is his enemy. Saul is his enemy in one sense that he's coming against David. But David, I believe, this is just your pastor's opinion. I believe that David never wanted to be confronted with Saul, not because he was afraid of losing his own life, but he was afraid of taking Saul's. Because David knew, I'm, the, I'm going to be the king. God has his hand on me. He's already told me that. God doesn't lie. I, just, I believe his heart was, I do not want to be in a position where I have to fight with Saul because I know God will, and I'm not going to be the tool. God is the one who anointed him. God is the one who will bring him down. I am not going to have my handprints or my fingerprints or my flesh or my will on any of it. I'm going to leave it in God's hands. But you know what? When people around you see you going through difficulty, sometimes well-meaning family and friends will give you ungodly counsel. You know what? Your husband, the way he treats you, you should just divorce him. I don't know why you put up with that. If I were you, I would just leave. Um, what does the Bible say? Do we have biblical ground? No, then you should not leave. But all my friends are telling me, I, uh, your friends, irrelevant. What does the Bible say? Amen? The word of God is the authority. And David is in a situation now where, again, even in his own mind, he could have got caught up in this. Well, yeah, you know, I am the anointed king, and you know, God brought him right here. But God didn't bring him there that David would slay him. 
but that David would grow. He brought him there that David would grow, that his heart would be revealed, and that God would use it as a lesson both for him and for King Saul. And so often what we see as an opportunity for us to get even is actually an opportunity for God to do a work in our hearts. We don't need to be getting even with anybody. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Let's leave it in His hands, not ours. Amen? But you don't know how so-and-so treated me. Had anybody throw spears at you lately? Because King David did, right? Have anybody tried to pursue you all over the world to kill you and telling everybody to kill you and setting your own family against you? Had that happen? No, I don't think so. so. But David, in the midst of all of this, is going to keep his eyes on the Lord and God is going to bless it. David would not bow to worldly pressure or justify ungodly behavior by his circumstances, but instead would be led by the Holy Spirit within him and what God's word had been spoken to him. Now watch what happens. Now it says there, And David arose and slashed off the head of Saul. That's not what happened, right? It says, David arose and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Now can you imagine what the guys were thinking when David was going toward him with the sword? All the 600 guys are like, right? They're probably elbowing, you know, right? They're just all fired up. And I get to be Secretary of State, right? I mean, they're arguing, right? Can't you just see it happening? And David's going toward him, and they're, they're just like, this is going to be awesome. Kill him, kill him, kill him, right? And David goes up instead and bends down and cuts off the corner of his robe and picks it up and comes walking back. They're like, dude, you missed. Get back over there. That wasn't even close. Go back over there and get him. But David comes back with the hemp, just a, a small portion of his garment. And again, these men were probably thinking, David, what's wrong with you, man? It's self-defense because he's trying to kill you. It's all right because God promised to give you the throne. It's all right because, you know what? Jonathan even said you deserve the throne. You know, this is a God-given opportunity. How in the world could you blow it? David, you're supposed to go kill him. And what's amazing is, he gets that advice from them, and we're going to see in just a second how David responds. Completely different. Completely different responses. Why? Because David is filled with the Holy Spirit, and I believe these men are not. So attributes of a Spirit-filled man. He isn't overwhelmed by the, by the size of the opposition, and he doesn't respond the way the world does. The world would have killed Saul in a second. All those other men would have snuffed him. David didn't. Why? Because David was a man after God's own heart. Number three, a spirit-filled man is convicted when he acts contrary to God's will. Look what it says. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he did not slash his throat like everyone wanted. That's not what it says, does it? David was troubled because he had cut his robe. His friends thought he hadn't done enough. David thought he did too much. His friends thought you should have killed him, and David was grieved in his heart that he even cut the hem of his robe. David is convicted by the Holy Spirit that that's God's man until God removes him, and you're not to touch the glory. You're not to, t- you're not to go after him in any way. You're not to even cut the hem of his garment. So David is convicted while his guys think he should have done so much more. You know what? Saul wants him dead. And all David did was cut his robe and David feels convicted. Isn't that amazing? You know how that's possible? Holy Spirit. That's the only way it's possible. Somebody's going after you, hammer and tong, wants to destroy you, and you feel bad because you raise your voice a little bit. You know how that happens? The Holy Spirit living inside of you. And that's not you being wimpy, that's you being godly. Amen. 
That's you being obedient and listening to the Holy Spirit within you. We are not to respond the way the world responds. We're not to overcome evil with evil, but we are to overcome evil with good. The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. And the fact that he's convicted by just cutting the hem of the garment of the very one who wants to kill him shows me that David truly is a man after God's own heart. A man whose heart is broken even by what the world would see as the smallest uh, form of wrong or sin. Now understand something about a robe. In those days, the length of the robe was ascribed to your authority. It represented your authority. And so David had shown dishonor to the position of the king of Israel by cutting his robe or lessening his picture of authority, if you will. And so David is quickly convicted because right after it says it happened afterward, David's heart troubled him because he cut Saul's robe. You've heard me say this many times, but if you're new, I'll repeat it in case you haven't. A mark of spiritual maturity is a distance in time from when you sin to when you're convicted and when you repent. I believe the closer we get to the Lord, the shorter that time becomes. It's not, it might be months, then weeks, then days, then hours, then seconds, then nanoseconds. Sometimes now, you, if you're really walking with the Lord, the words aren't even out of your mouth yet and you're convicted. Because that's the Holy Spirit walking with you, overflowing in you. you know, and when you do that, when you sin, you're just grieved. And that's a sign of someone who's spiritually mature. And that's what we see in the heart of David. Verse 6, and he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master. To my what? To my master? The guy throwing spears at me? The guy that's got the whole, all of Israel seeking to kill me? What does he call him? The Lord forbid that I should do this to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing that he is the anointed of the Lord. You know, David knew better than anyone that Saul was a train wreck. David knew it. David knew that his life was a mess. David knew he didn't step up when they were supposed to fight Goliath. He knew he didn't go out and fight the Philistines when he was supposed to. He knew that, you know, he had slaughtered the the priests. He knew that this guy's life was a mess. But you know what? He still saw him, not through his own eyes, but the Lord's. He's God's anointed. God raised him up. God will bring him down. Now, I want to say this. This verse, sometimes people take this connotation out of context. Touch not the Lord's anointed. You ever heard that before? And we're not to, but understand this. That doesn't mean that those in positions of spiritual authority have no accountability. Sometimes you hear people say that. Well, hey, don't be touching the Lord's anointed. I'm anointed, so don't be, you know, whoa. You're not above, you know what? You're not above being, you know, questioned. Amen? Amen? But at the same time, he respected the fact that God had put him in that position and that when God was done with Saul, he would bring him down. You know what? God did not leave Saul there so he could do a greater work in Saul. He left Saul there so he could do a greater work in David. So we need to understand that we don't understand why Saul's still there. God left him there so he could continue to work on David's heart so he'd be ready to be king when it was time. So we sometimes wonder, how come God's keeping that person? God may be working on the other end of the equation. He was called by God. And you know what? You've been called by God. And if you've been called by God, you don't have to strive for position. David didn't attack Saul to try to get to be king quicker. If you feel like God is a calling on your life, you will not have to strive to be in the place God wants to use you. You just be faithful right where you are. And in due time, God will put you where he wants you. Understand that ministry is not a destination. It's a way of life. We're all in it. It's not where you're going to be one day being used by God. God wants to use you right where you are today. God wants to use you when you leave this place. 
God wants to use you tonight to pray with people and encourage people. Then it says there, verse 7, So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. You know, I love this because not only did David not, not go after Saul, he wouldn't let his guys go after Saul either. Now, sometimes we'll have this kind of thing. Well, I didn't do anything to him. I can't help it if my servants went and cut him down. I wasn't my fault. I was just sitting, I, was, I just turned around for a minute and they all went out and killed him. And sometimes we try to do that. We try to not have it be our responsibility. Well, someone else takes care of him. It wasn't my fault. You know what? We need to stand up and speak out against those going after or acting contrary to the will of God. When you condone ungodly behavior, it's no better than participating in it. Because we are not to condone it. We're not to say it's okay. We're not to turn our back on and act like it's no big deal. Well, I'm not doing it. That's between them and the Lord. We need to love each other enough not to be sin sniffers and you know, self-appointed, self-righteous finger pointers, but we need to love each other enough to come alongside people that we care about and put our arm around them and encourage them if they're walking outside of God's will. Amen? Amen. Oh, that was weak. I'm going to miss Nigel. You know, this is last night. <laughs> Only guy that said amen. God bless him. You have to like videotape, record that, and I'm gonna just have to put that down. No, someone's paying attention. Now, so Saul not only restrained himself from doing it, from doing evil, but his word restrained those with him as well. Point number four: a spirit-filled man sees submission to authority as submission to God. Verse eight. So David also. Wait a minute. It says, and Saul got up from the cave and went his own way. Excuse me for not finishing that verse. So he didn't allow them to rise up. Saul got up and left. And you can imagine, David came back with a robe and a few of the guys probably went, let me go get him. And David, no, stay here. None of us is touching him. And then Saul gets up and walks out. And you can imagine as he's walking away that the guys are probably pretty flabbergasted with David. Dude, that was our chance. You let him get away. But David, again, is not that, does not have that kind of a heart. He's a man who wants to do God's will. A spirit-filled man sees submission to authority as submission to God, verse 8. David also rose afterward and went out of the cave and called out to Saul saying, you dirty, rotten scoundrel. That's not what he said. He said, my Lord, the King. My Lord, the King. Who was anointed King? David. But yet he still calls Saul King. Why? Because God had raised him up and God alone would be the one to bring him down. Romans 13 tells us that we are to submit to the authority that God has placed over us, that all authority is placed there by God. Your boss was placed there by God. The police officer that pulls you over that you don't agree with was placed there by God. The government officials, the teacher that you have at school, whoever it might be, we need to submit to them. Now, we don't worship them, but we submit to them. Amen? We give it now. Again, as we're going to see with David, it's hard to respect the man, but he is going to respect the office of king. Maybe you know the police officer that's pulling you over and you don't respect him. You still respect the authority that's been given to him by God. When do we not respect the authority? When the authority commands us to not respect God. Amen? But anything short of that, we honor them. And so that's the heart that David has, and that's the heart that you and I should have. Even with your boss at work that mistreats you. God has you there for a reason. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. Not only does he call him Lord, but he submits before him. He shows a heart of submission and brokenness before him. You know what? David 
is going to ask Saul to examine his actions. But right here, he's reflecting his heart. Here's the heart of David. He's been hearing words about David. Oh, David wants to kill you. David wants to be the king. David wants to take your throne, Saul. Don't you know that? And yet every time he meets up with David, that's not what you see. You see just the opposite. And David doesn't try to defend himself, but he simply comes before King Saul to represent his real heart. Verse 9, And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say indeed David seeks, to, seeks your harm? You know, again, they come and people make false accusations about David. As you walk with God, people are going to make false accusations about you. And the temptation is going to be to defend yourself. Let God defend you. He'll do a way better job. Amen? Let God defend you. He'll do a way better job. And it's hard because, you know, we, we live in a society of, man, you know, man, who do you think you're talking to, man? Right? I'm the only one ever said that. <laughs> you know, we do that. Who do you think you're talking to? Who do you think? Hey, man, hey. I'll drop you like a bag of hammers, man. You know, that's that mentality. God doesn't want us to have that mentality, amen? But that's the mentality we can often have. You know what? He's going to say to him this simple thing, and I love this. He's going to tell him, you know what? Examine my actions, not my words. Just, just look at my heart. Too often we want people to trust our words and ignore our actions. Yeah, I know you've seen everything I've done, but just trust what I'm telling you now. David says the exact opposite. Forget about what everybody said. Just look at what I've done. Well, what a great testimony that is. Amen? You know, we try to convince people with our words, but we need to live it out in our actions. True faith produces godly actions, and belief should impact our behavior. Look, verse 10. Look this day. Your eyes have seen the Lord deliver you today into my hand in the cave. And someone urged me to kill you, but my eyes spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. David continues to show respect to the very one who seemed to deserve none. And the truth is, his actions deserve no respect, but again, he was placed there by God, and he submits to the authority that God has placed over him. Then it says in verse 11, he tells him, I could have killed you, but I didn't. You're the Lord's anointed. He's showing him a heart of submission, and again, a heart of obedience to the Lord. Verse 11, Moreover, my father see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. No one see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand. I have not sinned against you. You know what's interesting? There's one other time we see something happening with a robe and King Saul. And I believe this event reminds him of it. Back in 1 Samuel 15, the prophet Samuel rebuked Saul for his hard-hearted disobedience to God. And in his distress, Saul tried to keep Samuel from leaving. He grabbed his robe and a portion of the prophet's robe tore away. And he was left there holding a torn piece of Samuel's robe in his hand. And then Samuel turned around and said to him, The Lord has told, torn, his kingdom, uh, told, torn the kingdom of Israel from you, Samuel. And to, or from you, Saul. Today he has given it to a neighbor of yours who is far better than you. So he's holding this piece of the robe in his hand. Samuel turns around and says, David, or excuse me, I'm stumbling tonight, forgive me. He turns around and says, Saul, the kingdom's been ripped from you. It's no longer yours. It's been given to someone else who's better than you. And now the next time he sees someone holding a piece of robe in his hand, it's the very guy who the kingdom's been given to. It's King David. And there's not a doubt in my mind, it's all running back to him. Oh, oh man, I'm not doing too good. And King Saul, even in his rebellious state, there's a time 
that there is some level of conviction. David's heart is proven not in his words, but in his actions. He could have killed Saul. Few of any would have questioned him if he had. His own men egged him on. And after all, he was God's anointed. God had brought him right into the cave. This is certainly the Lord's will. He could have done it. But instead of listening to the words of men or being trapped by his circumstances, he obeyed the word of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit, and he didn't do it. And he was convicted that he even cut the robe. He's not going to strive in the flesh, but he's going to rest in the spirit. He knew God had appointed King Saul. He knew God would bring him down in his timing. And until then, he was not going to strive to get what he wanted in the flesh, but he was going to rest and wait upon the Lord. What a great example for all of us. Because it's so easy to strive and to knock walls down. And certainly that's my personality. Run through the brick wall, make things happen. God wants us to be still. And then he says, yet you hunt my life to take it. The end of verse 11. You know what, Saul, I I had you there. You were right in front of me. You were caught with your pants down. I had a sword in my hand. I could have killed you and they would have made me king, but I didn't do it because you're the Lord's anointed. He's the one who rose you up. He's the one who will bring you down. I've done nothing, Saul, ever in my life against you and yet you want to kill me. And again, because he had lived a godly life, he could speak these words with great conviction. Attributes of a spirit-filled man, number five. A spirit-filled man, again, not only recognizes authority as being authority that comes from God, but a spirit-filled man has a clear conscience before God. Look at what he says. Let the Lord judge between you and me, verse 12. And let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. Let the Lord judge. David not only didn't take Saul's life in his hands, but he left all the judgment in God's hands. This is exactly what we need to do. Lord, you judge. Lord, he's, he's wronged me. It's in your hands. Lord, he ripped me off. I'll give it to you. Lord, he mistreated me. I was fired for the wrong. Lord, you know what? I'm not going to stand up. I'm not going to defend myself. I'm going to trust you. Lord, I put it all into your hands. Boy, that's hard to do. But that's exactly what God wants us to do. Well, people say, well, then we'll be a bunch of marshmallow Christians. Everybody just be running right over the top of us. Right? Do you think God can defend you better than you can defend you? You think he's better? He's always better at everything. Amen? He's better. The only thing he's not better at is sinning. He's never done that. We're the only ones that get better than that. But it says, let the Lord judge between you and me. Let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. You know what, King Saul? You can chase me until you die, and I will never raise up my sword against you. I will never fight back. I will never come against you. You can come after me the rest of your life, and I'll never happen. That's why I believe that he did not want to be confronted with Saul, not because he was afraid of Saul killing him, but he was afraid to be put in a position where he'd have to fight back and he wasn't going to do it. Verse 13. As the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. You know what? Wickedness proceeds from the wicked. The Bible tells us, says, a man is so his actions are. I mean, that's a paraphrase. Out of the overflowing of a man's heart, his mouth speaks. A corrupt tree produces evil fruit. A wicked man does wicked things. David is saying, if I'm a wicked man, I would have committed wicked deeds. But I'm not going to. I'm going to leave it in God's hands. I'm going to trust you to the Lord. My hand shall not be against you. You know, David was not afraid of being harmed. He was afraid of being disobedient. He was more afraid of disobeying God than he was getting stabbed with a sword. It meant more, it broke, it would break his heart more to disobey than it would for someone to come up and stab him. You know, Lord, give us that heart. That when we sin, our conviction is greater. 
that even if someone came up and treated us unfairly, even if someone literally stabbed us with a sword. Verse 14 and 15. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you perceive? A dead dog, a flea? Therefore let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. David again pledges, let God be the judge. Let God plead the case. Let God deliver me. We don't always need to be quick to defend ourselves. Let God do it. Our flesh is quick. Our focus is on what man thinks and that's why. We want to defend ourselves because we're worried about what men think about us. What we need to be focused on is what God knows about us. Amen. Amen? Not what men think about us. Last point. Godly actions of a spirit-filled man bring conviction to others. So he's saying, let the Lord judge. I'm not going to, you know what? I'm going to leave it in his hands. I'm not even going to fight back against you. If you take it from me, fine, you can have it. I trust the Lord. He's a faithful God. Boy, it takes a lot of faith to do that. But lastly, we're going to see that his actions do have an impact on King Saul. Look what it says, verse 16. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, that Saul said, is that your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Saul wept. Why did he weep? Because David acted godly. Because David was acting in the will of the Lord. Because David treated him in a godly way, even though he didn't deserve it. You know what? The son of David treats us in a godly way and has shown us grace, even though we don't deserve it. What a God of love and grace and mercy that we serve. And we see here a picture of that, that this is Saul is like the most wicked guy at this point. And yet David shows him kindness and David shows him, you know what? And that's the way the Lord treats us. Verse 17, then, then he said to David, you are more righteous than I. If you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. This is one of the first true things Saul said in a long time. Verse 18, and you have shown this day how you have dealt with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. David's godly behavior brought conviction to Saul's heart for his ungodly behavior. Again, we don't overcome evil with evil. We overcome evil with good. Now, you might be sitting there saying, yeah, well, I've tried that. I had this guy, and, you know, mistreat me, and, my boss, and you know what? And I tried being good, and I, he never got convicted. He just got worse. He just ran over me more. Well, it's not over yet. Amen? Amen. And it doesn't matter. In God's timing, it will happen. And you need to understand something. Saul kind of seems like he's repenting here, right? It's not over. Saul's going to get worse. So here's the point. We need to obey God and leave the results up to Him. Even if the results are not what we want or what we think is right, we need to know that God knows better. And just trust Him. Boy, man, Pastor, I didn't come for this. I, you, know, I'm, you know, I got stuff going on at work. I was ready to go to my office tomorrow and yell at somebody. Now I can't. I'll be convicted. That's good. Amen. We need to be convicted. Amen? Verse 20. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king. Amen. David obeys God and all of a sudden Saul's speaking the truth. Isn't that amazing? What happens? And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me. 
and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. You know what? This rebellious king recognizes the Lord's anointing on David, and he then asks him a favor. This amazes me, actually. He says to him, you know what? When you become king, make sure that my family isn't... Remember my family. Could you take care of my family? I know I've been trying to kill you, and, and you know what? Starting tomorrow, I'm going to try to kill you again, but... <laughs> When you become king, could you remember my family and be kind to them? You know what's amazing? If Saul is his enemy all of his life, David's going to mourn when Saul dies, and he is going to treat his family with kindness. Man, what a picture of our Savior, the son of David, the one who showed us incredible grace that we did not deserve. It's when we live our lives set apart to God and dwelt by His Holy Spirit that even the most rebellion and hardened of unbelievers will begin to see Jesus in us. You know what? When somebody is as cantankerous as can be, just love on them. I had a coworker. I, know, I had a coworker. Where are you going? I had a coworker <laughs> that was just like the meanest person I've ever met. I mean, she really was just mean all the time. And she was especially mean to a really good friend of mine who's now the pastor in Calvary Chapel, Mountain View. We worked together. His name is Rick Franks. And she just would go out of her way to be cantankerous and mean. And you know what he did? He heard that she was testing for a promotion, that, a test that he had recently taken. And he went over to her desk and he said, Hey, I understand you're going to be taking that test. You know, I just took it about a month ago. How about we get together at lunch for the next couple, three days and I help you prepare for that test? And she was like, well, You would do that? absolutely you know what three days later she passed the test and she could not say enough good things about him from that day forward you don't overcome evil with evil you overcome evil with good the easiest thing to do would have been to go you know what she's a pain i hope she fails you know what i mean (laughs) instead it was you know what let me show her the love of jesus christ let me reach out to her when she doesn't deserve it because he reached out to us when we didn't deserve it Amen. amen last verse So David swore to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went back to the stronghold. Here's what's interesting. The anointed went back to the cave, and the rebellious king went back to the castle. That's what happened. So much for the uh, word of faith movement. So much for the name and acclaim it, grab it and blab it, tell God what you want, he'll give it to you stuff. Sometimes we need to be in the cave that we can grow. Amen? Amen? It's not always about the castle. Sometimes the worst thing that could happen to us is to be in the castle. Because then we'll get our eyes off of God and we'll have it on the castle instead. Amen? Amen. And God's heart is, you know what? We need to come to the place, Lord, do whatever you have to do in my life so that I'll serve you. So that I'll follow you. Don't give me 50 cents more than I can handle in a godly way. Don't give me five more square feet in my house than I can use for your glory. Don't give me any more ability, anything, Lord, that I can't use in a way that's going to bring honor to your name. If I have too much and it takes my eyes off of you, Lord, I don't want it. Well, we don't hear that. You don't see, hear that on, from televangelists very often, do you? It's always, come to Jesus, he'll give you whatever you want. And you know what? All I want is him. Amen. I don't want stuff. Amen. Jesus is better than stuff. Amen. Amen? Amen? That stuff's all perishing. I want the stuff that's going to be with me in heaven. Amen. Not the stuff I'm going to leave behind here and going to rot anyway. Amen? So in closing, we can learn a great deal, again, from David's example. Attributes of a spirit-filled man seen most, co- most clearly in times of trials and difficulty and persecution. Number one, a spirit-filled man or woman isn't overwhelmed by the size of the opposition because we know our God's greater. Doesn't respond the way the world does. We don't see through the world's eyes, but through God's eyes. We don't respond in the flesh, but in the spirit. Number three, 
A spirit-filled man or woman is convicted when he or she acts contrary to the will of God. Conviction is a sign of someone who's walking with the Lord. Number four, see submission to authority as submission to God. Remember that when you go to work tomorrow. Submission to authority is submission to God. Number five, has a clear conscience before God. You know what? Because we're walking with Him, we can stand before Him and know that, you know what? He's with me. His hand is upon me. He's guiding my every step. We can have a clear conscience as we walk in the Spirit. And lastly, has his godly or her actions bring conviction to others. I pray that we would live lives so sold out for God, so loving, so gracious, so merciful, so kind, that people would just knock us down and want to know who, what in the world happened to us. Amen. And then we can point them to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? Instead of us tackling them and trying to force something on them, why don't we live so on fire for Him that they're tackling us to find out what's different? Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you love us and that you love us so much you'd rather die than live without us. You sent your son to die in our place so we might have eternal life. Lord, we want to be men and women filled to overflowing with your Holy Spirit. Not just on Sunday morning and on Wednesday night, but Lord, when we walk out of these walls and we enter our mission field, Lord, be it at work, be it at school, be it in our neighborhood, be it at family functions with people that don't know you. Lord, give us a supernatural love for those who don't know you. Give us a supernatural burden for the lost. Help us, Lord, to see the world through your eyes. Help us, Lord, to see those difficult people that we struggle with from a godly perspective. Help us, Lord, not to overcome evil with evil, but to overcome evil with good. Help us, Lord, to live in a way that we represent your name well that people want to know the God we serve. We love you, Lord. We can't do it without you. We're desperate for you. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand.